electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Hi, everybody. I am Brian Sullivan. Tonight on Last Call, while everybody was watching Jay Powell, Janet Yellen kind of nuked bank stocks and the markets. How the Treasury Secretary may have just reignited the fire threatening banks, plus TikTok's final countdown. One of its top influencers joins us out of tomorrow's blockbuster congressional grilling. And you're welcome, America, apparently. Moderna on defense over quadrupling the price of its COVID shot. Is it gouging the public? And if so, where is the outrage from D.C.? We'll have that debate and much more. So belly up or buckle up. Last call is up right now. All right, good evening here. Good afternoon out west, everybody. There are a lot of fast-moving parts tonight for your money. So, dare we say, you came to the right place. And let's start right here. Just when you thought you might be able to relax a little bit about this banking mess, Janet Yellen tosses a big old wrench or maybe a hand grenade into the room. From Wall Street to Main Street, investors were all geared up over the Fed and Jay Powell. What would they do? What would they say? But at the same time, in a different corner of D.C., The Treasury Secretary stole the thunder and rock stocks. Look at that. That is a tick by tick. That is today of the bank ETF. And you can see when Janet Yellen started speaking at this testimony and giving what one trader called to me, quote, obtuse answers, the market began to sell off. In fact, another trader texted me and said Yellen, quote, fumbled on the five yard line. So what exactly happened? Let us find out. Start with CBC's senior White House correspondent, Kayla Tausche in D.C. Kayla. Good evening, Brian. Stocks began to give up some of that ground after Fed Chair Jay Powell acknowledged that the banking crisis could lead to stricter loan qualifications, which in turn could pinch the economy. But he also expressed confidence in the system and said that depositors' money would be safe. But on Capitol Hill, while testifying about the White House's annual budget proposal, the Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen raised new questions about the limits of that deposit protection. Here's how Yellen responded when Tennessee Republican Bill Haggerty asked her whether she could circumvent Congress in order to guarantee all bank deposits. This is not something that we have looked at when such a failure is deemed to create systemic risk, which I think of as the risk of a contagious bank run that we are likely to to invoke the systemic risk exception. So not considering that blanket guarantee, but Yellen's comments coming just one day after she addressed bank executives calming markets by saying regulators could step in to backstop more deposits. Here she is yesterday. Our intervention was necessary to protect the broader U.S. banking system. And similar actions could be warranted if smaller institutions suffered deposit runs that posed the risk of contagion. 
Fund manager Bill Ackman later tweeting that her position today was a big mistake, saying we are suffering from self-inflicted wounds. Yellen's statement combined with the 25 basis point hike puts even more pressure on the non-systemically important banks. Clear that if the government determines a bank has systemic potential, it's worth insuring. If it doesn't, it may not. At least that's where the government's position is right now, that it's going to take everything on a case-by-case basis. Brian? Kayla, before we get to our panel, and you're going to stick around for that, i got to ask you, is it possible that the Treasury Secretary did not know, did not understand, or simply ignore the fact that what, what basically they agreed to over a week ago was probably needed to be done through an act of Congress. And that's kind of the point that people try to make, which is no matter what you might want to do or say you want to do around bank deposits, it may not be up to you. Well, certainly she is uh, she is a veteran of Washington. She served in many different positions, Treasury Secretary, Council of Economic Advisors and at the Federal Reserve. Certainly when she speaks, the markets listen, but she also knows very well what she is saying and perhaps how the markets could react. Now, there have been some questions, Brian, about whether there are certain regulations that the executive branch could lean on if, in fact, they wanted to do this in a temporary basis or for a certain class of banks. But I think that with so many members of Congress studying this themselves. They want to make sure uh, that the executive branch is not going to take essentially action by fiat. And she gave them that answer today. All right, Kayla, stay with us. I want to bring in our panel on this. we got Herb Greenberg, CBC contributor and senior editor at Empire Research, and Jake Sherman, co-founder of Punchbowl News. More on the D.C. side of the story. You know, listen, Herb, I think here's the problem. Here's the problem. OK, and I'll give you the parenting analogy. All right. Because I admit it, I could be a lazy parent. Right. My son comes to me. He wants something. I say, go ask your mother. He goes to the mother. My wife says, no, go ask your father. Here's the issue. It appears that Jay Powell and Janet Yellen are at times contradicting each other. Do you agree? Well, they did today. Uh, you yeah. could argue. Uh, and it I tanked think- bank stocks and it tanked the market at the end of the day. Well, well, and she could look, she's as Kayla said, she she's not she's not a newbie and she's been around and maybe she wants this to be a congressional thing. And it's just hands off by her when she says we who is we and what who really has control over what happens. It's clearly, you know, on the surface and just from the headlines, a tone deaf statement, um, because the one thing we know is that as a re- not as a result of this, it should have happened all along. Two things. One, banks are business transactions. They should be viewed as business transactions and should be protected as such. And in the 15 years since they raised the limit last time, coverage on everything I own has been shot higher and I've had to pay more because the world has changed. So that now seems to be obvious. And my guess is it'll be a, a, a struggle among in Congress to decide yeah. what to do about this. That's fair enough, Jake. But I, And you're a D.C. pro. Here's the thing. I mean, markets do not like uncertainty. And when you have the Federal Reserve chair of the Fed saying one thing, and there were literally notes going around this morning, TD Securities had one saying Powell guarantees all bank deposits, something like that. And then you've got Yellen making sort of that vague comment like maybe that's not the case today. That is a serious White House and D.C. messaging issue, at least in my view. Well, Kayla's heard my my rant on this many times. Many people who are involved in markets have no idea how government works. Zero, not even the most basic understanding how government works. And that's a problem. Um, The obvious thing here, very obvious, is this is a statutory issue. 
whether uh, uh, bank deposits are going to be insured above $250,000. Now, we've seen the Fed and the FDIC take what I would describe as extraordinary measures in uh, insuring uh, deposits beyond that in a narrow, on a narrow basis. But everybody is in agreement on two things. Number one, Congress would need to act to change this in the long run. And, and, and members of Congress are saying that actually on your air today, uh, Blaine Lukatmeyer said that Republican from Missouri, who himself was a banker. OK, number two, number two, uh, the House Financial Services Committee, Republicans who control it, say they are not interested in any legislation right now to do anything at all. So there is nothing going on on the legislative front. I talked to Patrick McHenry, the chair, just a couple days ago. He said, the administration hasn't even asked me to do anything. I don't think anything needs to be done. If the administration feels differently, they can come to me, but we're not going to react yeah. uh, on our own. And we don't think there's anything to react to at this point. Well, at some point, it's just going to then you just set it up, Jake. At some point, this will quickly devolve into the other team said this and it's their fault. Kayla, I guess here's my beef. And I and I, and I admit I did not. You know, nobody up sitting where I'm sitting likes to admit they didn't know something, but I'll admit it. <laughs> I did not know that this was a legislation, you know, statutory issue. So last Sunday night, what, nine days ago, eight days ago, we were hosting a special. They came out with the news. We're sort of debating it. I wish I would have known it. I would have said, guess what, guys? It's not possible without an act of Congress. But yet the markets, well, the markets didn't buy it. So somebody clearly knew, Kayla. Um, I just wonder. Yeah. They said it. They said we're going to basically do a lot of this stuff. I think probably they should have made it a little more clear earlier. Well, you could have asked me that question last Sunday, Brian, because this was all born out of the, the 2008 financial crisis and the regulation that followed there. But I think from the administration standpoint, there's really a, a an allergy to a knee-jerk reaction here. There's a desire to want the dust to settle, and then to figure out with clear eyes what needs to happen from then. I mean, when I'm talking to White House officials, they say that there is a policy process ongoing, that they are discussing whether there should be any changes to be made. But we've also seen this administration want to distance themselves from any political liability on these issues. I mean, we saw this with TikTok, too, wanting to say that's up to Congress to make that decision of whether it should be banned, how that app should be treated, and we'll decide which legislation we support on that. And they seem to be doing something similar on this, letting it remain in Congress's hands. And if Congress wants to take action, then they'll see whether there's a bill that materializes that they want to throw their weight behind. But until then, I mean, it's really just the authority of the Fed and the FDIC and to a certain extent, Treasury, which would have to greenlight it. If they see another bank run that has systemic yeah. risk, then they can act. But they've made it very clear case by case basis until then. Well, let, let her final comment to you, Lisa, let's hope that the bank issue it is settling down, by the way, don't want to get into the weeds, but I got some of the data on sort of the bank transfer facility tonight, just about a half an hour mm. ago. The numbers look pretty good. Maybe things are calming down a bit, but many of these banks where you are in California are down 30 and 40 percent this month. Best guess, my man, best guess, Mr. San Diego, is this over? Oh, is it over? No, it's not over. And I have one question to ask you. And although it's not this going to be this major. I'm the anchor. Don't ask me anything. I don't know anything. No, all I, no I, I have this one other point to raise. And that is, is could there be something else be going on out there? Uh, and this may it's, it, look it's out of my realm. But the issue of a private market solution, you had Nelson Peltz on. He knows more about this than I do. He was on CNBC the other day, you know, talking about something where, you know, you could you could put something in place where over a certain limit or over the limit, whatever that limit is, you start charging fees for that insurance. Yeah. 
And so I don't know where that role, where that plays in any of this. So far, but it has so far, CEO Herb, I will answer your semi question. SoFi CEO Anthony Noto today either suggested that or said they're going to implement it. I can't remember. Up to two million get together with other banks, basically create their own insurance pool. Because my guess is because the president likes to say if you make over four hundred thousand dollars a year, you have a solid gold yacht and you're super rich. I think if you've got a couple million in the bank, we could probably, Jake, classify those people as wealthy. Yeah, I mean, I, I, far be it for me to say who's wealthy, but I mean, I, charging a fee, I think that's in a, a private bank's purview. Um, but I, again, I just would, would like to note here, the administration's first reaction to this was not that we should be protecting people's deposits over 250. It was that Congress should give the administration authority to claw back compensation from management teams at banks who that fail. So that was their first reaction. So you could get a sense of where the administration's mind is. And, and again, Congress is yeah. nowhere close to doing anything here. Uh, you can't put it more clear than that. Congress is nowhere close. I mean, that's it. And it's just going to be this kind of thing. Again, Jake, Kayla, Herb, good discussion. Herb says it is not over yet. I tend to probably agree with you, Herb. I hate to say it. Thanks. All right, up next. Do you want another COVID shot? Well, if you do, it's going to cost you. Moderna hiking the price of the jab even after getting funding from all you taxpayers to develop the drug. That is next. Plus, from Starbucks to striking teachers in Los Angeles, why higher costs are pushing employees to the edge. We call it credit inflation, and we'll show it to you coming up. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. All right, welcome back to Last Call, everybody. Here's a question. What is a fair price for a COVID shot? 30 bucks, 100 bucks. How about $130 at the top end? That is about the cost. Moderna is planning to raise the cost, too. And that would be a 400% jump from the 26 bucks the federal government paid. Moderna CEO Stefan Bonsell stood before Congress today to try to defend the company's decision to raise prices. We're expecting a 90%, 9-0, reduction in demand. As you can see, we're losing economies of scale. Senator Bernie Sanders, probably as expected, argues that hike is excessive. This type of profiteering and excessive CEO compensation is exactly what the American people, whether they're Republicans, Democrats, or independents, are sick and tired of. 
Well, Moderna developed a vaccine, of course, alongside the National Institutes of Health and the U.S. government, meaning you, the taxpayer. And the government spent $12 billion on research and development and later buying the shot for the American public. Joining us now is Public Citizens Access to Medicines Director Peter Mayberduke and healthcare economist at Northwestern Craig Garthwaite, who testified, by the way, at the hearing today. So I will start, Craig, with you. Would this be a, you know, a 90 percent plus drop off in demand? Would this be a, a fair hike because it's not really probably going to affect that many people anyway? I mean, I think the question whether it's a fair hike is sort of beside the point. They're going to raise it to what they think is the profit maximizing price. And that's what we should expect a publicly traded for-profit company is going to do. If we as a nation wanted to get lower prices as a result of us having given them this funding from the NIH, then in June of 2020, when we were negotiating this agreement, we should have said, actually, here's the money. And in exchange for that, you can never charge above $30. We chose not to do that because we wanted Moderna to move quickly. We didn't want them to go look for uh, money in the private markets. And in exchange for sort of not putting any restrictions on, we are where we are, where Moderna has the right to raise the price to roughly what Pfizer says they're going to charge and a little bit more than what a flu shot costs for a high-dose flu vaccine. Yeah, but you know what, Peter? This is basically like I kind of view this, uh, the COVID vaccine, as almost like a public service. I mean, taxpayers helped fund this as well. It was a unique time, obviously a horrific pandemic. And this is this should not, in, I don't know, maybe in my view, you tell us what you think, be treated the same as another type of drug. Look, the NIH Moderna vaccine is a triumph of federal science, public investment, a public-private oppression, public-private partnership that lasted a number of years to bring to market one of the most effective medical tools of the COVID pandemic. And you said it, we invested $2.1 billion in research and development, another $10 billion in purchase commitments. We de-risked the market for, uh, for Moderna. And nonetheless, Moderna failed after relying on federal inventions that are at the core of the vaccine technology. Moderna failed to properly credit federal scientists, has made $21 billion in profits, and now wants to tell us that it's been offering a discount uh, this entire time. Of course, it's proper to ask for price reductions. Of course, it's proper to push Moderna to lower the price. Our own estimate is that this uh, vaccine in its early formulations could be manufactured for $3 per dose. There's no way we should be paying 130 Could there be, Peter, and I'll go back to a deal to be had here. A lot of people are making a stink about the fact that these, these, these you know, Moderna and Pfizer and others are immune from lawsuits. Why not make a trade? Open that up. You can sue these companies but allow Moderna to charge whatever it wants. Make that deal. I don't know if Moderna or others would make that deal. Would they? Uh, I, I don't know. You'd, you'd, have to, uh, you'd have to ask them. But what we're seeing here is a clear case of profiteering. And ultimately, we all pay for the price increases, right? So whether out of pocket or through higher insurance premiums or through our tax dollars, higher prices are coming from us and are, are constraining our health priorities. So, of course, we have to lean in. Uh, we have to lean in on price. Now, yeah. look, to Craig's point, I, there's a part of what Craig is saying that I agree with. Of course, the federal government should have negotiated a better deal at the outset. And to your point, Brian, NIH and other federal entities have the power to insist on reasonable pricing when we are making yeah. these grants in the first place. And hopefully one of the lessons from the powerful story of the NIH Moderna vaccine uh, today will be that we cut better deals in the future. Well, we I, and Craig, I agree with that. OK, but that that's gone. You know, that, that's a long time. A couple of years ago, might as well have been a decade yeah. ago. 
Is there a deal? The reason I brought up no. the, the, the lawsuit stuff, is there a deal that can be made now sort of that that you're an economist, right? That trade off so that both parties come out sort of happy, but sort of unhappy. No. And I think it's really important to realize that like Moderna has already sunk their money in. We paid for it as well, but there was $3 billion of capital that came from private uh, individuals to Moderna beforehand. We made a deal with them. We cannot go back and now relitigate that deal three years later. If we wanted to strike a better deal, we should have done it. And this is a far bigger problem than just the pandemic. Right. This is a question about the overall way in which we trust the government to stand by its word when it comes to drug development. And at the heart of drug development is the fact that firms make investments today that pay off 10 years from now. Over that time period, they need to believe that the regulatory state will remain a trustworthy counterparty. And the more we chip away at that, trying to strike deals after firms have already moved forward, the fewer products we will get in the future because private capital will leave this market and move to other parts of the economy. Yeah, but didn't, well, they, they, didn't they change? Like, they, I think I got a C minus in contracts law, but didn't Moderna, did they, they must have told the government then years ago, we're going to raise the price by 400 percent because otherwise you would have broken that quote unquote contract unless you're talking sort of about a theoretical contract no, the, on the, 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 the by changing contract, the terms during no, or ex post facto. No, the contract was an advanced marketing commitment for a very specific set of doses. Moderna delivered those. Okay. After that point, there was nothing listed about what the price would be. And the government Look, deliberately I, left that out to get Moderna to take the money. And the, the, the government now the, has to kind of live with its choices. Yes, that, that Peter was the, the carrot. I think NIH and others feel that the the, the spirit of the, the cooperation has been broken here. Of course, this extreme price increase is going to compromise uh, the federal COVID response uh, among other among other priorities. Look, we of course ideally would see Congress and the administration working to get to bulk purchasing of vaccines and negotiate a new deal. That's what we want to yeah. see everyone get the vaccines they need at an affordable price and leave no one behind. And that is what Congress and the government should do. Yeah, well, yeah, because that's going to be great now. now we're going to go, yeah, go to a local pharmacy and a family of four, hey, guess what? That's going to be, uh, what, $520? No, 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 no. Let's be clear. For a family of four, they're going to pay, because of the Affordable Care Act, nothing out of pocket for this. I'm not saying that your insurance won't pay for it, but you're not going to pay out of pocket for this. And Moderna has committed that anyone who's uninsured also won't pay out of pocket. Well, who, so who's paying? But we haven't seen any so who's deals paying? from Moderna's patient assistance. You know, United Healthcare. Who's are they paying? Because yes, yes, it's, it's preventative care under the Affordable Care Act. This is a zero dollar copay. This is already dealt with in law. So this isn't a question of what you pay at the register there. In the terms of some unspoken agreement or the spirit of what the NIH said, maybe this suggests that the NIH needs, if they really want to start talking about getting involved in drug development, should become a more sophisticated organization. Well, we a, should not be surprised way, that a private firm does this. Very different. And it's good, good clearing that up on who pays, although I have a feeling, just speculating, Craig, the insurance companies may try to make that back somehow, but they're, they're so generous. Peter and Craig, it was a good conversation, guys. Thank, Thank you. you. Still ahead, borrowing costs are soaring. Worker discontent is spreading and may only get worse. We'll connect the dots next. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu.
All right, welcome back to Last Call, everybody. Tonight, we're going to focus on the creeping high cost of what we'll call credit inflation. As the Fed tries to right maybe its previous wrongs by spiking interest rates, the cost is trickling down to you. Pretty much everywhere, from homes to cars to credit cards, and some of these are big increases. Look at these numbers we put together. One year ago, the average used car loan was about 9%, depending on your credit score. Now about 11%. A new car loan, also close to 7%, up about 2% in a year. Credit card interest costs surging as well. The average, now more than 20% APR per year. Wow. And no credit cost hike is going to be worse than the price of a mortgage. Last year, an average credit score borrower could get a 30-year loan at about... 4.3%. Look at that. It is now about 6.5%. And as we showed you last night, that is also bringing down the value of homes. People just, they can't afford higher mortgage rates and higher home values. These are some of the biggest cost hikes that we have seen in decades. But also keep in mind something else. It is not just higher credit costs that could hit consumers. It is the availability of credit that could be hit as well, meaning As the smoke begins, hopefully, to clear from the banking crisis, many Americans may be hung out to dry and not be able to get a car loan or a home loan at any price. Now, this is leading into at least part of, perhaps, worker discontent. Case in point, two major protests happening around the country today. At more than 100 Starbucks locations, workers walked off the job, demanding better pay and the power to unionize. And in Los Angeles, public school workers are in the midst of a three-day strike over wages and conditions on the job. More than half a million students are out of school for three days as a result. By the way, no school district was out of in-person school about as much or maybe as much as the L.A. school district during COVID. And now they're out for another three days. And if you think this is going to be the end of it, we maybe have a bridge to loan to you or sell to you at 9% interest. For more on this, let's get now to our all-star panel. Former North Dakota Senator Heidi Heitkamp, Wisconsin. Current Republican Congressman Brian Stile. And Yale University lecturer Joanne Littman. Also the author of the brand new book just out yesterday. It is called Next, The Power of Reinvention in Life and Work. And so, Joanne, we'll start there because we're trying to tie together, you know, these higher costs. By the way, the L.A. school district got a couple of billion under the reopened schools money. They're sitting on most of it because they're afraid to pay it out. And these, and these workers, probably rightly so, know that and are disgruntled. COVID changed a lot about the way we think about work and what we're willing to take. Oh, 100%. Yeah, thank you, Brian. First of all, the reason I wrote next, it ties into exactly what we were just talking about. It is a deeply reported guide to navigating change in how we live, work, lead. It's backed by hundreds of personal interviews I did, plus insights from experts in the process of change. But the reason I wrote it is for exactly what we're talking about. We have been through these three years of absolute tumult. People are burned out. We're reprioritizing. We're rethinking our relationship to our jobs. We're looking for more meaning in our careers and in our lives. And we really need a guide to get there. So I wrote next to help guide us through this incredibly tumultuous period. And I've got to tell you, the response, even in these 24 hours, has been so strong because of everything that's going on right now that's adding to it, this economic pain, the banking crisis, 
the you know the 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 the, the higher costs that I just laid out. And by the way, it is it is the, tends to be the, the people that can least afford it. Congressman, are that are the ones that get hit the hardest, right? It's not the 790 credit score person that necessarily cares. It's the 590 or the 610 desperate for a car to get to work in Milwaukee or Kenosha. I spend a lot of time in Wisconsin, okay? Spent a lot of time there. And I can't tell you how many restaurant owners and businesses I spoke with personally, face-to-face. They said, I either can't get anyone to work or if I can, I got to pay them so much that I can barely stay in business because I can't charge $13 for a lousy chicken sandwich, although, as I showed on Twitter, some are. Where's the fix for this, or is it only going to get worse, Congressman Style? You, you hear exactly what I hear when I'm home in Wisconsin talking with folks. And let me tell you, inflation impacts people very differently. It really clobbers low-income workers and seniors on fixed incomes. Those are the two groups that get hit the hardest. And as you correctly noted, it's, going, it's hitting them in the pocketbook with higher housing costs. It's hitting them with higher car loans. Grocery prices are up. And here's the biggest challenge is we're working to fight inflation. The Federal Reserve is working on the monetary side. That's a blunt instrument that hurts people. Congress, I think, has failed to do the job to address the fiscal policy that has led us here in the first place. If we have an area to work to truly help the American people, it's to get the policies right in Washington to lower costs, such as unleashing American energy and getting folks back Mm. into the workforce. I know. Senator Heidkamp, North Dakota, you know something about energy. I'd like to agree with Congressman Style, but I just I just don't know what power the government is going to have to bring down the price of, you know, a car loan without, as Senator Elizabeth Warren has said, crashing the economy. Well, when you when you step back and you take a look at the challenge the Fed has, which is to keep employment high, but also stabilize prices. And now the added the added challenge of bank stability, they're kind of between a rock and a hard place. And if you're going to support the Fed, Today, in your argument, Brian, you'd say, look, this may be short-term pain for long-term gain in price stabilization, but it does ignore the fact that so many people are struggling. And what they see is they see billions of dollars going to institutions in the during the pandemic, billions of dollars of profitability, and they're saying, we're not getting any of that. And that's the worker unrest you see that your academic here is pointing out, which is we're being left behind, even though everybody else seems to be successful in this economy, especially our employers. But we got to get Congressman Stahl come back to you just because there was a constant connection and everything. How do we get people back to work? Here's the reality. 20 years ago, the the employment population ratio for American men was about 85 percent. I think the number is about 65 percent now. I've talked to many business owners. They literally can't find anybody. And they know personally the guys that used to work for them that are just no longer working, which I do wonder, how are they making a living, by the way? How do we get people back to work and reduce some of that labor pressure, which is putting a lot of our viewers, small businesses, out of business? Can't get people? Got to shut down. Yeah, on the look back, I think it's pretty clear. During the pandemic, we were paying people not to work. And coming out of the pandemic, we saw the government continue those policies. It put us in a bad spot. And once people are out of work, it's hard to get them back to work. In particular, as we look at our social safety net programs that are so essential, we need to put work as a core component to help people who find themselves on tough times, but ultimately to help them get back into the workforce. Work in many ways is a habit, but that's going to be a key piece of this. You know, and Joanne, to your point, I'm sure this is in your book. By the way, is there an audio book for it? Because I'm just listening. I'm back to listening to audio books. 
Because I'm commuting again. There is every version you could want. There you go. Fant- is audio it in French? Oh, no, I'm kidding. So the, it's important because <laughs> I'm commuting again. So I'll listen to the audiobook of next. People just don't want to commute, right? The, the New York City is half empty. The office building, which that's a whole different crisis, by the way. I, I don't think you can force people to do it if there's another employer who's willing to say, you know what, Ms. Lippman, you don't have to come to the office. And you'll take less money to do that. Well, you're putting your finger on exactly the right point. I mean, my fellow panelists are looking at the policy. I've been thinking about the workers and the employers. The employers have a really important role to play here. I was fascinated by one of the issues that came across in all of my interviews with people who are looking to switch careers or switch jobs is there's feeling that they are not getting respect. And it's not just economic. It's the psychology of feeling that you are valued And I saw it actually in the strikes that you were just talking about. I was fascinated. I was looking at uh, some of Mm -hmm. the coverage of the Starbucks strike. And there were signs, of course, saying, you know, pay us more money. But there were also signs that said things like Starbucks, this is your sign to be kind to workers. In L.A., signs that said, we are asking for respectful treatment. Well, that, that's coming. Ignore and that that's, at their peril. By the way, that, that's a great point, Senator. Last word to you. I mean, listen, but I think, honestly, respect comes from the customer as well, too, right? And you see now people have lost their freaking minds. I see people berating. No wonder they don't want to work, right? I mean, it's, I get it. And we've lost our collective minds. It, it, Kindness it, comes from so us, not Congress. And there's so much hostility now, Brian, in the workplace. People feel absolutely no uh, restriction on what they can say to people who work. And so when you're saying, let's get people back to work, let's start valuing work, not just economically, but overall, and say to workers, look, you are a huge part of our productivity, the growth of our economy. You are the backbone um, of American uh, growth, and we're going to respect you for that. Yeah, and you know, I, I travel around, whether it's in Wisconsin or Iron Greenleaf's Cafe in Iron Mountain, Michigan, by the way, as I've said before, great wings. If you treat people right, you may not have a problem finding the workers. Some businesses do it right. Uh, really appreciate everybody's view. Joanne Littman, Brian Stile, Congressman, and Senator Heidi Heidkamp in North Dakota. I'll see you in Williston soon, Heidi. Thank you. All right. Well, not, right not until summer. All right, up next, the real-life impact of a potential TikTok fan. One of the platform's top influencers joins us live ahead of Congress's high-stakes hearing that could theoretically lead to a shutdown of TikTok. All right, welcome back to Last Call, everybody. Hope you have a good night or afternoon out west or good morning in Guam. We are CNBC, so let's take a look at futures and see how things are shaping up for tomorrow morning. Speaking of morning, today was a tough day for the markets. Janet Yellen made some obtuse, not my word, a trader's word to me, comments about bank deposits, stocks tanked, futures right now very thinly traded. They are, we'll call them flat. I'm not going to say that's higher. All right. It is time now for tomorrow's news tonight. And one significant story developing this evening that you might be talking about tomorrow morning. Coinbase has received a Wells notice from the SEC. Now, a Wells notice, you've probably heard that, but a Wells notice is usually, but not always, usually one of the last steps taken, steps taken, he said, before the SEC issues formal charges against a company. In a regulatory filing, Coinbase says it believes the potential enforcement action relates to its crypto spot market called Coinbase Wallet and staking service called Coinbase Earn. 
Now, Coinbase's chief legal officer tells us in a statement that, quote, we are prepared for this disappointing outcome and confident in the legality of our assets and services. Now, that's not helping confidence in the stock. Coinbase shares right now are down 16%, although context is key. Even with that drop of 16%, Coinbase stock is about double where it was to start the year. So at a rocketing couple of months to the year, it's now down 16%. All right, elsewhere, the final countdown is on for tomorrow's blockbuster TikTok hearing on Capitol Hill. For more on the big stakes and key things to watch for, let's get now to CNBC's Julia Borston. Julia. Well, Brian, this will be the first time that TikTok CEO Shou Zichu has spoken before Congress. And as he faces questioning from the House Energy and Commerce Committee, the stakes are high. There's a growing call to ban TikTok or force a sale by its Chinese parent company. In his prepared testimony, Chu pledges to keep the, com- the keep the platform safe, particularly for teenagers, and to make that a top priority, to firewall protected U.S. user data from unauthorized foreign access, to make sure that TikTok is a platform for free expression, preventing it from being manipulated by any government, and to be transparent and to give access to independent monitors to ensure accountability for his commitments. Now, Chu will address the concerns raised by members of the committee, saying he's met with a number of the members, and the company regularly provides documents and information beyond TikTok's legal obligations. Now, the House Energy and Commerce Committee saying in a statement, quote, Americans deserve to know the extent to which their privacy is jeopardized saying we know big tech companies like TikTok use harmful algorithms to exploit children for profit and expose them to dangerous content online, saying we need to know what actions the company is taking to keep our kids safe. Senator Mark Warner also weighing in, saying, quote, TikTok's lack of transparency, repeated obfuscations and misstatements of fact have severely undermined the credibility of any statements by TikTok employees, including Mr. Chu. Now, she was likely to stress just how popular the app is. Just this week, the company announced that it has 150 million U.S. users. And we also heard how essential it is for certain content creators. There was a press conference with some of them, uh, some of those content creators in D.C. earlier this evening. But there's also another thing happening tonight. There is a dinner that started just at 7 p.m. Eastern, organized by an anti-China alliance of tech executives and some political voices. It's hosted by author Jacob Helberg. He's a critic of U.S. policy around TikTok. And speaker Kevin McCarthy is set to speak at this dinner tonight. So we'll have to see how all of that drives the critique of TikTok tomorrow. Back over to you, Brian. Everything is happening in D.C. Everything. Julia Borstam, thank you. So TikTok, obviously a massive platform for influencers, including doctors like plastic surgeon Dr. Anthony Yoon. Seen here. You will be popular. You're going to be popular. Popular indeed. That is just one of the hundreds of TikToks Dr. Yoon has put up to over 8 million followers on the platform. And joining us now is the man himself, TikTok influencer and board certified plastic surgeon, Dr. Anthony Yoon. Doctor, what were you holding in your hands in that video? Well, let's move on. Um, what would it mean to you if you wake up next week and TikTok is gone from your phone? 
Well, this is a big deal for me and for the millions of TikTok users. I mean, 150 million Americans, you're talking about nearly 50% of the country is actively using TikTok each day. And the thought of just getting rid of it and banning it outright is something that has never happened in the United States before. And honestly, this does not smell like the United States that I know of freedom of speech and expression. But do you understand, and I, and I certainly hear you, and by the way, a lot, I think about 150 million people might agree with you, doctor. Is there a part of you, obviously you're a medical doctor, incredibly intelligent, do you, do you, is there a part of you that understands some of the national security threats, the worry like Australia just put out with TikTok saying, they just worry that the content may flow the wrong way and we can be influenced in the wrong way by a foreign adversary. Yes, I totally agree that and see why there's a concern there. But is the concern worthwhile to literally take this app away from 150 million Americans? I mean, that's the thing is that TikTok has been working with the government to make changes. I mean, they have uh, set aside $1.5 billion uh, for this Texas project to basically wall off all the data. Now, we know that all the social media companies are mining our data. The only difference with TikTok is it's from China. And so instead of taking this huge step and banning this app that is so helpful for 100, you know, over 150 million Americans, why not work with the company to make sure that it works the way that the government feels comfortable for? All right. So, Doctor, you've got it. You're not just on TikTok. You've got a huge Instagram, I think, YouTube presence as well. And I'm not bringing this up to promote you, although maybe I just gave you a few more followers. You got Facebook, et cetera. Are you going to start to focus more on those others or just keep rolling sort of the dice on TikTok? No, at this point, TikTok was my first platform that really gave me a voice. I mean, when the pandemic hit in March of 2020, I found myself in an office with no patients, uh, no money coming in and employees that I needed to pay. And so I started creating content on TikTok really as a way to connect with people in that scary time. And since then, I've had so many hundreds of thousands of people tell me that just watching my videos for 30 seconds helped get them through such a scary time. I mean, a lot of people don't realize just the amount of influence that medical doctors can have on platforms like mm -hmm. this, where we banded together to help promote, let's say, COVID vaccine safety and all that. And, and that's going to be gone if they just close this yep. uh, platform down. Well, let's see what happens, but we appreciate you taking some time out of your schedule, Dr. Yoon. I still want to know what you're holding there at the beginning of that video, but we'll talk about that another time. <laughs> Dr. Anthony Yoon, thank you. Yeah. All right. Okay. There is a lot of serious stuff going on today. Hopefully some of you are having a cocktail right now. We wish we were right now. But until that time, let's lighten it up a bit and head to quicker than the ticker, a quick shot of the news that matters and a cow story. So let's put 90 seconds on the clock and go. Spring breakers could surpass 2019 travel levels this year. More than 158 million people are expected to travel. That according to an estimate from Airlines for America. Major closings, footlock, sneaker stores closing 400 low performing stores, mostly in malls. Utter chaos. Brooklyn after a cow escaped the slaughterhouse, dodged cars and people. But was caught after a short while. The company that owns the animal says it was not hurt and may go back to the original farm, or it will be really hurt. Toyota will be testing its liquid hydrogen-powered car during a 24-hour endurance race. Nobody hopes that a hydrogen-powered car will help the world reach carbon neutrality. The famous dollar slices no longer. At one famous New York pizza shop, Two Brothers Pizza announcing the slices now cost a buck fifty. Thank you, inflation. Speaking of pizza, Domino's officially liquidating in Italy after closing up shop in the country last summer. 
no one's surprised, the franchise struggled to win over customers in the food's home country. Hmm. The oldest animal, the Houston Zoo, a 90-year-old turtle named Mr. Pickles, is now the father of three new baby tortoises. Their names are Dill, Gherkin, and Jalapeno. Two Virginia men escaped prison using a toothbrush and metal object and hit up IHOP. Unfortunately for them, other IHOP customers reported the duo and they were promptly rearrested. Good try, fellas. All right, so I want to I hear from you at Last Call CNBC, at Sully CNBC on Twitter. What was the most surprising story that you learned from that? Number one, was it that there were Domino's pizzas in Italy? I mean, no disrespect to Domino's pizzas, but it's Italy. Number two, that there is a slaughterhouse in Brooklyn. I lived in Brooklyn. I had no idea that there was a slot. Which of those stories is more surprising? Let us know. All right. That is all the time that we have for tonight, folks. Coming up, though, actually, we're going to go back in time. We do have more time. We're going to go back in time to an evening that should be toasted by all you beer, wine, and, and booze lovers everywhere. I just lied to you. But we're back right after this. All right, well, welcome back. It wouldn't be called Last Call if we didn't talk about booze once in a while. I mean, some of you may be watching us right now with a refreshing adult beverage, maybe stuck at Penn Station because New Jersey Transit is down on the Northeast Corridor. Either way, that wouldn't be the case if it wasn't for a major event that happened 90 years ago tonight. That is when President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, FDR, took the first steps toward ending prohibition. So let's go back in time to March 22nd, 1933. 18 days after his inauguration, FDR signed the Beer and Wine Revenue Act. It allowed the sale and the taxation, of course, of booze with no more than 3.2% alcohol. That was then followed by the passage of the 21st Amendment, which officially brought the end of the scourge of prohibition across America. Literally, drinking was illegal, although clearly millions still imbibed, giving rise to the speakeasy, but... I think it was probably a brutal few years overall. So as you can imagine, many people celebrated the decision to reverse the ban. And these are some of the images of Americans enjoying their first drink after 13 years of prohibition. Now that is some history worth raising a glass to. Hey, sometimes you just want to go where everybody knows your name, right? So what is your favorite nightcap? Normally we do that segment right now. Well, guess what? Tweet us maybe a shot uh, picture, we mean. (laughs) Last call CNBC or Sully CNBC. We want to see a picture of where you are, how you're watching the show, out in whatever it is. If we wish you could tweet us a shot uh, and do that, we might try to throw some of these up. Just so you know, throw some of these up on the show tomorrow night or Friday night as well. As well, trolls, polite trolls are certainly welcome. All right. Well, thanks for watching. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. That is it for Last Call for tonight. We will see you tomorrow. The Tank of Shark is next. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.